You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Good to see you. Thanks for coming out uh, church in the, for Church in the Park. It has been a weird day, right? We were planning to have... Church at 10. I'm getting text messages from many of you saying, dude, there's a thunderstorm on the way. I'm like, all right, let's push it back to 11. And I was looking at the same radars, uh, me and uh, several folks who were setting up, and not a drop of rain. <laughs> so uh, well aware that some folks couldn't make it because uh, pushing it back an hour messed with their afternoon plans. But I'm thankful uh, to many of you who came. And, uh, well, let's just get into it. Uh, many of you know we're in the sermon series uh, that's you know from the book of Acts, and the sermon series is entitled The World Turned Upside Down. And after 31 sermons in Acts, right? We This is the 32nd sermon. So after 31 sermons in Acts, we've finally come to the verse where this series finds its title. Here's the verse. It's verse 6 in Acts 17. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Again, we see some persecution going on here, which we'll talk about here in a moment. And they were shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, and they have come here also. So they've heard about it, right? And uh, now they're in town, and and some folks are taking issue with these men who are turning the world upside down. These men have turned the world upside down, but not with swords, guns, or forming a mob, right? They are turning the world upside down through the preaching and teaching of the gospel of free grace. And that's what we have seen since the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, One of the many lessons we have learned from God's word in Acts is that God uses people just like you and me, like regular Joes. Uh, God uses people like you and me to tell others about the glorious message of salvation through Jesus Christ, right? But as we... We'll see today, being on God's mission to advance the gospel is not always easy, right? We all know that. It is not easy, but it's still good. It's still good, and it gives God glory. So if you are a Christian, you continue the legacy that we read about in Acts 17, verse 6, right? By actively sharing and living out the gospel in our families, right? If you got to if you're part of a family, you live out the gospel there uh, in your neighborhoods or communities. And really, frankly, it goes throughout the world. And that's what it's all about. And as we do this, right, as we share the gospel, wherever God has placed us, wherever he's planted us, when we do that, people's lives are turned upside down uh, for their good, for sure, but for the glory of our great God. So I want to pray, ask for God's help briefly, and then we'll get into the message. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we come and stand underneath your word. Your word is authoritative, it is clear to us, and it's life-giving. And so we come today needing help from the Holy Spirit uh, to be taught and instructed and to be changed by you. And so we come dependent and needy, and uh, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the benefits of being a pastor who uh, preaches through books of the Bible is that I'm forced to slow down and like wrestle with a text, wrestle with a particular passage in the Bible, right? I just can't fly right by it. I actually got to, um, a lot, I got to absorb it, right? If I'm going to preach it and teach it, I got to really contend with the text. And I, and I try not to pick and choose what I want to say, but I want God to speak through his word. That's the goal here. 
Um, as I have wrestled with God's word in the book of Acts, several reoccurring themes emerge, right? Uh, you know, th- themes which I had anticipated because I've read Acts before. Um, I'm sure many of you have seen these topics as well. We got, we got, we got topics like what evangelism, uh, the kingdom of God, the, the nature of the kingdom of God, the advancement of the kingdom of God comes up, and uh, the active role of the Holy Spirit. The ongoing role of the Holy Spirit it seems to be like on every page of Acts. We continue to see these themes, really, frankly, until Acts 28, the last verse. Um, we, but there's another theme that continues to reemerge, which I did not uh, necessarily prepare myself for. Here it is. Persecution. Now that we're in Acts 17, I must say that I am surprised at the frequency of Christian persecution throughout Acts. It's almost as if an alternative title um, for this particular book could be the persecution of Christians. (laughs) That's how much we see it. Um, it, it, The frequency of Christian persecution just seems to be um, pretty staggering when you read through the book of Acts. Uh, Think of it this way. We don't need Fox's Book of Martyrs to know that Christians die for their faith because they were persecuted. I suppose the theme of persecution does not leap from the pages of Scripture because the persecution we read about in Acts, now think about this, the persecution we read about in Acts is foreign to the church in America where you and I live, right? We've never experienced this kind of persecution Maybe we've heard stories of modern-day Christians being persecuted in a country that is, you know, overtly hostile to Christianity. But you and I have never been stoned or caned because of our faith in Jesus Christ, right? I think we can safely say that. Nonetheless, I believe it's time. Um, the time is right to put a spotlight on Christian persecution. Now, talking to you about persecution uh, to, to really to any American Christian is like talking to my kids about taxes. <laughs> uh, this last week I had a conversation with my oldest child just about growing up. You know, she had some questions and uh, the conversation went into, you know, a bunch of different directions. Um, but then we began to talk about taxes, right? And I explained to her that she doesn't need to worry about taxes right now, but you know, there's going to be a day. Now, how much is always debated? You know, how much should we or should we not be taxed, whatever. Uh, but there will be a day when she will have to pay taxes. Not right now, but there will be a day. So it will be the case with Christians in America. The American church, I think, can learn from the book of Acts about what it looks like for the church to be the church in the face of persecution. Because let's face it, the church in America has experienced an unusual amount of freedom and privilege to worship its creator. I, I, don't, I think we can safely say that. If you look at church history and trace history back to Acts, I'm not sure you can find a segment of time when local churches and Christians are like involved in every political position. American Christians are in the academy. American Christians are leading businessmen and women. American Christians are on the front lines when there's a tragedy. American Christians are the you know the first to adopt a child or or to engage in foster care. You know, without a doubt. And I want I say this without getting into the political history. Um, this country has been shaped since its founding to allow space for churches, churches of all shapes and sizes, right? But this country, since its founding, has allowed churches to thrive. 
to simply thrive from Christians. How would you uh, kind of respond to that? You might you might try fighting to keep it, and that's fine, right? People do that in the political arena all the time. But let's say it was taken away. How would you respond? What if you and this church become the target of persecution? Are you ready to take hold of your faith even when you are told that the Bible is, uh, you know, I've heard this before, it's, it's bigoted. You know, the Bible is archaic. How could you possibly believe, this, you know, this ancient document that's, you know, not relevant for me today, right? How about this question? Are you willing to preach Christ and him crucified, even if that means you will get canceled, right? That's, that's the big word. That's the buzzword today. Cancel, cancel culture. You know, I don't think I'm um, a doom and gloom pastor or a preacher, right? Uh, actually, I, I have a ton of hope for my present and the future because of Jesus Christ. I want you to see that you have a tremendous amount of uh, hope in your present and in your future because of Jesus Christ. But I do not, let's face it, we do not do not want to ignore the ever-changing cultural realities in which we live. And Acts can help us navigate our changing cultural climate while still being a part of God's ever-advancing mission. You know, think of it this way. No matter what happens to America, whatever direction it goes in, do you think God's kingdom ceases to advance? Absolutely not. The opposite's happening. God's kingdom continues to advance. And so we need to peel back from our understanding of Christianity through the American lens, and we need to understand Christianity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what happens, the gospel is going to continue to advance. But while we're here in this culture, in this climate, in this setting, we need to think well what it means to be a Christian, especially in the face of persecution. You know, since Pentecost 2 in Acts 2, or excuse me, since Pentecost in Acts 2, uh, we have seen people thrown into jail for, uh, you know, talking about Jesus. Threats have been made toward Christians. Mobs have been formed against Christians. Rocks have been thrown with the end goal of murder. That almost happened to Paul, right? Rods have been used to beat those who preach Christ, and they preach his crucifixion and resurrection. Persecution toward the church has come from the outside, right? That's that's the obvious one. There are several, also several points throughout Acts where we've seen persecution come from within the church. And one of the questions I think we need to ask and can ask is, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why so much persecution? Why are Christians being persecuted in Acts? Why has persecution followed Christians throughout centuries? Why all the hate? Why all the vitriol? Why... You know, why can't first century Christians live in peace among the Greeks and the Jews and the Romans? You know, there there are several answers to why Christians were the recipients of so much, you know, hate. But I think part of the answer is that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you think about it, if you pause and just kind of ponder um, the implication and application of the gospel, some of it's, you know, offensive to people. For, uh, For some people, the gospel is offensive because it does make an exclusive claim. For example, go back to Acts 4. You don't have to turn there, but just remember Acts 4 where Peter um, said in front of all, remember all the big wig religious leaders, you know, Peter was preaching the gospel and he was pulled in front of all the, all the big wig leaders. And he says this, let it be known to all of you. He's preaching right at the religious leaders. Let, let you know. And I want to let all the people in Israel know that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, right? He's going after him, like, you crucified him. 
whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. I'm talking about a miracle that took place. There is salvation, it says in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter told the Jewish leaders that they couldn't be saved unless they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. These Jewish leaders would have been so offended. They would have been ticked off, right? They were ticked off. They would have, been, they would have felt completely disrespected. They would, have, they would have said something like, Peter, how dare you make such a claim? How dare you even go there? But if Peter's claim is correct, if the only way to be made right before a holy and just God is to have faith in Jesus, then Peter must speak the truth. Even though he couldn't predict how these religious leaders were going to respond to him preaching and speaking the truth. Listen, the fantastic news of the gospel is also the hard news for those who will not accept it. You cannot be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. The, the, the surgical knife of the gospel of Jesus Christ cuts both ways. For those who accept the gospel by faith, the knife performs spiritual heart surgery. For those who reject Jesus as Son of God, the knife presents a dead life leading toward eternal destruction. Now think, what about, think about what I just said. Depending on what side of the claim you fall on, you are either full of joy, right? You're full of joy because you realize you have everything you could ever need in Jesus, or you're infuriated. You're like, no way. Ain't going, no, uh-uh. You get upset and mad or whatever. And a person who is infuriated is not you know, pleasant to be around. There's another factor in which uh, Christianity invites persecution. That, that particular factor is that you know, it kind of makes an exclusive claim. And so a lot of people push back against that, and some people get really upset and going to fight against that. Well, there's another factor in which why Christi- Christianity invites persecution. The basis of Christianity um, is faith in Jesus Christ. But faith in Jesus Christ changes Not only what a person believes, but it changes the heart, which in turn, um, you know, changes a person's life. Uh, Christians are called by God to faithfully love others well, while upholding what I call, and what other people call, biblical values, right? Uh, Things that you you hold dearly to. Uh, But again, what happens when you bump into someone who does not appreciate Christian values or biblical values? Naturally, and again, we see this throughout church history, there is pushback to Christian values. Uh, Here's the bottom line. Commitment to the Christian life means counting the cost for following Jesus. What has our Lord said in the Gospel of Matthew? Blessed are you. Now, everyone loves that part. Blessed are you. We want to hear that from our Lord. Blessed are you. But what does it say here? Blessed are you, Matthew 5, when others revile you. What? So you tell me, uh, blessed is me that when others come after me? Yeah. Blessed are you when others revile you, and here's that word again, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. But here's what verse 12 says. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. 
Look, I'm not, I, I want to be careful. I'm not trying to paint the dim picture of Christianity. I'm merely trying to convey to you what we read in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, and what we see again in Acts 17, is when you believe in the gospel of free grace and you uphold biblical values, you will experience evil people who will speak against you because they dislike Christ and they dislike the work of Christ in your life, Right? We don't want to talk about this reality. I mean, if we're honest about it, we, we, this makes us a little uncomfortable. I'm sure you're uncomfortable just you know, listening to this. But what we have seen in Acts and throughout the entire Bible is that persecution is not just a reality of the Christian faith. You know what? It's actually unavoidable. Truly, it's unavoidable. I'll even say it like this, and I know I'm pushing the envelope here. I get that. But listen... If you are keeping the light of the gospel uh, within you hidden, right? Then you'll, you're not going to be persecuted, right? You're not going to be persecuted. You keep that light hidden, you're not going to be persecuted, but you're not living the Christian life rightly, right? The opposite's true, though, too. If you keep that light shining brightly for other people to see, you know what? You'll be living the Christian life rightly, but you may be persecuted. You know, you'll open the door for criticism, dislike, uh, Twitter hate, <laughs> right? Social media mobs can come after you for upholding biblical values. Perhaps you, uh, you know, perhaps it's an uncomfortable work environment because you, you see co-workers doing something you do not, you do not um, value or you, do, you believe is wrong. And they're going to be like, well, why don't you join it in? Well, I don't do that, Right? Everything I've said thus far um, helps to lay the foundation of what we do read in Acts 17. We see in this passage that the apostles did not keep their gospel light hidden. Their light was shining bright, real bright, for everyone to see. We now see in this, in this particular passage, they traveled 100 miles from Philippi, where, you know, it's where we were at last week, and they went to this major city called Thessalonica, if the name of the city Thessalonica sounds familiar, it's because after Paul left Thessalonica, he penned two letters to the church in the city, right? We know them as First and Second Thessalonians, and they're, they're in your New Testament. In verse 10, we read that after a time of ministry in Thessalonica, you know, Paul and Silas moved to Berea. And so I mentioned both stops this morning because both situations kind of mirror one another in terms of what's being said and then the response to what's being said. So let's just quickly look at what, what happened in Thessalonica in, in Berea. Notice, notice how the text describes Paul's preaching. In verse 2, we read Paul reasoned uh, from the Bible. That's the way the ESV translated, which means he, he likely engaged in, I think, hopefully a cordial debate or perhaps a passionate debate. You know, if, I don't know if about you, but I've had passionate debates before with people where it's not a, not a personal thing, but we're just, you believe um, strongly uh, a particular issue it could be a political issue or a theological issue. And you're just, you're just going after it. Right. So Paul, um, it says he reasoned with them and it was, it was probably, passionate about reasoning with them. It says also in verse 2, he explained the Bible. What that means is that, is that he just gave an interpretation of what they were reading. And oftentimes in Jewish synagogues, uh, the text was read out loud. That's why we read, uh, I think the reason why, but it's a, it's a mirror image of, of when we read Bible passages out loud, right? And so he gave an interpretation of what was read out loud. And he also it says, prove to them from the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In particular, Paul proved from the Old Testament. And I quote here, verse 3, It was necessary 
for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. So did you know, right? There are over over 1,000 prophecies in the Old Testament that find its explicit fulfillment in Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about, that Jesus is the Christ. So from the Old Testament, Paul has shown that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one, the Son of God. There's nothing passive in Paul's declaration to the Jews in the synagogues. Like, look at your Bible here. I want to show you from your Bible, Jesus. And frankly, we've seen this uh, modeled all throughout the book of Acts. It's also worth pointing out that the reading and teaching of the scriptures in the synagogue Paul visits is, like I said earlier, a model for the church. Christians must be committed to the Bible. Uh, One way to be committed is to demonstrate that every Sunday this book is opened up uh, so that we could hear from God. And that's what we want to do. We have a commitment to scriptures. The same thing happened in Berea, right? That was Thessalonica. You moved to Berea. Uh, these missionaries go to the synagogue and preach the gospel from the Old Testament. But notice how Luke, the author of Acts, describes uh, the Bereans in contrast with the Thessalonians. Uh, verse 11, now these Jews were more noble. That's an interesting way to articulate uh, a distinction between the Bereans and the Thessalonians. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul calls the Bereans noble because they were committed to seeking truth by doing the hard work of digging into the Bible. I mean, you may have heard of this this Christianese statement before, be like the Bereans. A lot of Bible studies exist that that, uh, have that same kind of motto, motto, excuse me, be like the Bereans, right? The point being made is dig into the Bible so that you can know the truth. And that... Let's be honest here. Like I, I, we had this conversation before um, church today with with a few folks. Like I tell, I said this. Hey, I want you to dig into God's word. I want you to test what I say against God's word. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Be like the Bereans. So in Thessalonica and Berean, there, there's also this unspoken assumption of Paul and Silas, and and frankly for the Jews as well. The Bible gives them an objective truth. And this is really important, especially in a day where objective truth is just being torn apart left and right. Everything is subjective. But the Bible is and gives an objective truth. The Bible is the truth that comes from the outside and tells them and tells us something about God. It tells us something about God's creation. It tells us about God's plan to redeem his people and his creation. God has spoken through the Bible and continues to talk to us through the Bible. We can know the gospel of Jesus Christ from the objective truth of the Bible. That is really important. Uh, for example, let's, let's say a high school student begins to learn about, uh, pick a class, physics. right? He begins to learn when a pre-written book is put in front of his eyes. The physics book comes to him from the outside, helping him to learn you know, about physics, right? Anyone who's been a a student has experienced this in their class. Here's the textbook. The point should be uh, well taken when we consider God's infallible word. Notice um, the power of the gospel as it's preached from the Bible. This, as As the objective truth is preached from the Bible. In Thessalonica and Berea, some Jews were persuaded, uh, the Jews who became Christians would have already accepted the Old Testament as God's 
spoken words. And so and Paul was helping them see, look at Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament. But Greeks were persuaded as well, which I find really fascinating. They did not have the same assumption. But it says in verse 4, many devout Greeks believed. And then in Berea, Greek women of high standing and men were convinced of the gospel. I'm teasing out this detail to make this point. It's a good point. When it comes to the proclamation of the gospel, the church cannot, let me say it, the church cannot jettison the objective truth of the Bible. The Bible is compelling and authoritative. It's compelling and authoritative. God, the Holy Spirit, uses the Bible to reveal Christ to a cold, dead heart and saves. You know, you know. next week, when we continue on in Acts 17, we will see how Paul takes another approach to preach the gospel when he's at Athens. Uh, but we have to admit that since Acts 2, the gospel is being preached from this book, from this Bible. And this is the pattern we need to recognize as what I would say is normative for our Christian proclamation. Uh, you know, I think there's no need. Listen, there's no need to get cute and fancy. Right? Like we want to be wise. We want to understand uh, culture. We want to understand, you know, when you're talking to an individual where they're coming from, for sure, right? But let's not get cute and fancy. We, we have everything we need in the scriptures to be able to talk about God, talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, talk about what it means to be saved. Now, will your faith in the gospel and God's word invite persecution in your lifetime, right? Especially if you, if your light is not hidden, but is seen by others. Yeah, probably to some degree. But does God give the grace to love our persecutor well? Absolutely, 100%. It has become common for Christians to, I think, disconnect themselves from the Bible. I think that is. I think that has been seen over and over again. I think it's loud and clear. Uh, let's disconnect ourselves from the Bible. We just love Jesus, but we don't want to read about Jesus in the place where we're supposed to read about Jesus, which is the Bible. <laughs> it's just a weird phenomenon, a sad one. Uh, ma- many people are failing to see how the timeless words of God continue to apply today. Some fail to believe the objective claims of the Bible, which I think is very uh, disturbing. Uh, they, they, they push back against the objective claims of the Bible because it does not line up with their culture. Or they get, they're getting pressure from people. Uh, so this is really important. Let's test my theory here. H- here are several biblical claims. I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to share them, and then I want you to ask yourself, how does our culture respond to these claims, these claims which I have been trying to argue are objective? Here's claim number one. Ready? The world did not begin to exist by chance. But the God we read about in the Bible created the world, uh, we call it ex nihilo. God created the world like out of nothing. How about that one? What does your science uh, textbook say about that? Claim number two. God created men and women. Those are your choices. How does our our culture respond to that biblical claim? Number three, Jesus did not only die on a cross, but he rose from the dead. You know, the Christian faith hangs on the claim that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is objectively true. So generally speaking, what does our culture think about the resurrection of Jesus? Right? Well, first of all, <laughs> it's not digging miracles. That's, that's what I can tell you. 
Number four, last one, but there are a plethora of biblical claims that our culture is going to reject. The only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. There is no other name in which you can be saved. Like all roads do not lead to Rome, if you know that, know that old idiom. There is no other name in which a person can be saved, period. Um, the gospel is exclusive in its application. It does invite all to hear and to listen without a doubt. We want to preach, but not everyone is saved. All right, The exclusivity of the gospel is honestly... In terms of its application, who is saved is not fashionable these days. Now, all the all this is again might sound combative. That's not my intent. Um, my intent is the exact opposite. I want Christians to take hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to uphold biblical, biblical values. Right? I want us to do this while loving the world around us. Well, I think it's important to see that uh, Christians did not. Um, start the violence in Thessalonica and Berea. They were actually peaceful, but because of what they believed, violence was brought upon them. Uh, Christians are not throwing stones, right? Right. We we don't throw stones because because God calls us to love others well, even our enemies. Matthew five. Right, go read the Sermon on the Mount, and then come back to me and talk about what God says about loving our enemies. So Christians, we Christians, need to know that throwing stones at people who disagree with us hurts our ability to share the gospel with them. Now, I'm not saying don't defend the truth, absolutely. But you do so not out of hate, not out of vitriol. We do because we love people. We want people to, to know Jesus. So we need to speak with love, live with love, and be willing to be persecuted in love. That's hard. Uh, but that is the Christian life. That is the calling uh, from our Lord to live like he lived, the sacrificial life by loving others well. Here's how Christians were persecuted in Thessalonica, right? What do we read here? Wicked leaders took other wicked people to create a mob, verse 5, even though the mob could not find Paul and Silas, right? They found their friends, so like guilt by association. Oh, you're hanging out with Paul and Silas? Let's get that guy. And isn't this particular guy, was his name Jason. Again, guilty by association. Uh, he, we, we assume he was a Christian at the very least. He kind of, you know, um, gave them housing. Um, and then the mob and its leaders said that the Christians would, would not bow down. That's the claim. You know, we're, we're going to throw them in jail. We want to persecute them because they will not bow down to Caesar because, uh, you know, they say they only bow down to King Jesus, verse 8, which is true. <laughs> Christians do not bow down to anyone but King Jesus. Now, the complaint is interesting to evaluate, and it can instruct our view of government, right, as Christians. If the complaint is these Christians will not bow down to Caesar because they serve Jesus, then yes, like I said, Christians should never bow down to any ruler at all, period, right? Christians should never bow down to any political party or politician. I don't, I don't care if it's a D at the end of the person's name or an R, we do not bow down to anyone but our Lord. You know, just like Daniel. Think of the book of Daniel. Christians bow down to only Jesus and Jesus alone. John Stott makes this point. The late John Stott, brilliant Anglican theologian. He says this, On the one hand, as Christian people, we are called to be conscientious and law-abiding citizens, not revolutionaries. On the other hand, the kingship of Jesus has unavoidable political implications since, as his loyal subjects, 
We must refuse to give homage to any ruler or ideology, uh, the supreme homage and total obedience, which are due to him alone. That's a great statement. So uh, in Thessalonica, our friends Paul and Silas find trouble. Uh, The trouble actually finds them. And then the same thing happens again in Berea. The same leaders in Thessalonica made their way to Berea. You know, it says in verse 13, agitating and stirring up the crowds, right? Trying to get the mob going. The trouble followed them because they were doing what they were doing in Thessalonica, right? The bold proclamation of the gospel. They held the light of the gospel out for all to see. When the light was seen, some believed, praise God. Some people were saved. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God drew them to him and saved them. Uh, but others reviled them. And uh, so, the, again, the gospel knife cuts both ways. And, you know, I, I think it's sobering to end by saying there is a cost to believing the Bible and believing that the Bible is your objective truth. There is a cost. There's a cost to showing the light of the gospel for all to see. You know, th- there's a cost to believing a person is only saved through faith in the gospel. There's a cost to following Jesus, like that's the bottom line. There is a cost to following Jesus. Christians need to be courageous. That's what we need to realize. We need to be courageous and not shrink away at the first sign of persecution, right? If if you were ever uh, persecuted for your faith, here's the other thing you need to know. You're not a victim, right? And it's very popular right now for people to take a kind of like a victim mentality. And I want to get into that. But I just want to say if you're a Christian and you're persecuted for your faith, you're actually not a victim. There's no room for victim mentality in Christianity. Why? Because you and I have everything we could ever need in Jesus. Christians are not victims because they have victory because of the atoning death of Jesus Christ and his victorious resurrection. Unbelievable. Remember Paul, right? Paul um, took on so many beatings, and his beatings were not a problem. They weren't a problem compared to the joy that he has in Jesus. You know, he he took beatings and it it wasn't a problem for him because he got to see other people saved through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. His joy was greater than his circumstances. How unfortunate his circumstances were. So why preach at the risk of persecution? We proclaim Jesus at the risk of persecution, however little or however great. We do that to worship Jesus and glorify our great God. We can't miss that. We do it because we love Jesus and we want to see our great God glorified in and through our lives. And we also want to see others experience, you know, the love of Christ and feel the joy that we have because of Jesus. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, um, we can live courageously. We can live boldly. We don't need to shrink away. We can preach the gospel with love and grace toward others, even when, even if there are times people push back on us and in their own ways try to persecute us. Now, we have a great God who is on mission to redeem his people to himself through Jesus Christ, and we get the privilege and joy to join God on his great mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you instruct us and you help us. And in the face of persecution, you give the grace to us, the grace to live well, the grace grace to live compassionate and loving lives, even to those who may persecute us. For our good, you do that. You give the grace for our good, but also for the honor and glory 
of your name. Amen. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.